Hi everybody and welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast where we talk about everything healthcare and technology. Please forgive the lack of usual pleasantries with music and stuff. I just thought it best to get this conversation out there today and be respectful of its tone. So my guest this week is Dr. Aman Gupta, who's a longtime friend and fellow digital health guy. He's also a frontline anaesthetics and intensive care doctor and has worked at accelerators like digitalhealth.london and the NHS Innovation Accelerator too. So certainly speaks our language when it comes to this podcast. So in this 30 minute chat, Amon talks to me about the coalface of healthcare during the crisis we're in. And I thought that for our listeners that might not have ever had the chance to get that view, it's important to see and hear why we do what we do in health tech, which is often to help people like Amon do their jobs when they're looking after patients so you're going to hear a really candid view really honest view of what's going on with COVID-19 you're going to hear about the preparation of hospitals and their workforce the fear healthcare professionals are going through the anguish of their families when they have to see them go to work every day Ammon's even buying a caravan to live on his own driveway to protect his wife and young child from the virus so there's some really poignant moments in this podcast, so please listen very carefully to what Amon has to say, particularly as he closes out the podcast at the end with his asks of the public. Well, mate, look, listen, so obviously crazy, crazy times. Good good for you that you've finally got a day off, I see, that you can manage to decompress a bit. But obviously there's so much going on and, and loads of things that we want to talk about. So I guess with you being a health tech guy and with you being also a frontline clinician, I guess it's useful if you just kind of tell our listeners a bit about your background to start off. Sure, sure. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm uh, like yourself, James, actually, background of uh uh, in anaesthetics and critical care um, and I've you know, continued to practice I've been practicing you know sort of uh, part-time basis whilst uh, working in the sort of health tech and innovation space um, in the NHS um, over the last couple of years uh, predominantly through programs such as Digital to London and currently on the NIA uh, supporting innovators to scale uh, in the NHS and the UK healthcare market um, so yeah that's predominantly where, where, where I've been working and agnostically uh, in terms of the types of technologies so not just digital but loads of different innovative ways of working. Cool so we've obviously known each other a long time and, and we've <laughs> had really like crazily similar career paths um, so you've obviously seen a load of tech so have I we've worked both on the front line and although not together yet although that might change if, uh, if I yeah. get my, my license reinstated which I I'm trying to pursue at the minute, although the the phones are off the hook for the GMC, I imagine, so I can't seem to get through to them. But um, yeah, with you being on the front line genuinely now, as all of this stuff is is happening with the coronavirus and with your background in technology, I think we can kind of speak a lot of the same languages here about a lot of the challenges, both clinically that that, that are happening, but also perhaps some of the challenges that are are happening through technology with there being a lack of ventilators and all these startups trying to push stuff through and all this other stuff. So I guess for for me now, I'm interested because I'm not on the front line of what is it actually like? If I'm honest, it's, um, it's I was there yesterday and I'd say um, there's a lot of, a huge amount of preparation. Now I think um, mm. it's got, it's important to say that uh, regionally, even across London and, and I, you know, I work in uh, sort of Burbio, London, um, 
there's there are different concentrations, I guess, the hotspots of of COVID, of coronavirus, and that is spreading, uh, obviously. So our current sites at the moment, we've got coronavirus there. We've got you know sites, you know, uh, cases increasing, I guess, exponentially. But um, a lot we do at the moment still have some time to prepare. Now, nonetheless, you know, arguably we're writing the rule book as 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 time, you know, as, as we go, yeah. as we go. So um, if I'm honest, protocols have been written um, within a couple of days by people taking leads on particular aspects of things. Um, really interesting innovations going on on the front line to uh, protect patients, to protect the staff um, as this sort of ties takes gravitas um, and also things about how we're going to resource allocate when, if I'm honest, the shit's really going to hit the fan. When in, yeah, in the so, so there's, um, I guess there's a lot of that. And then also morale, if I'm honest, is a, is a mixed bag. I think it's, it's interesting. You know, morale is um, obviously low and everyone's extremely worried about, uh, about what's about to hit, about their own safety. Um, but, you know, actually it's, it's also a good place to go and, and, and actually have a bit of a debrief on things. So it's an interesting place to be. So I guess there's, there's three kind of things there for me. There's firstly, there's the challenge of clinical capacity. So that's definitely a challenge. There's also the challenge of workforce. And in that you've included morale and safety as two of the big things there. I suppose also just, are there going to be enough of them to go in and actually do this? Aren't getting them well themselves. And then the third one, I suppose is technology. So starting with clinical capacity, then we now, and what, what date are we today? So we're Tuesday, the 24th for those people that might not be listening today or tomorrow. Um, we're two weeks behind Italy. We know that Italy in, in the, the equivalent of two weeks time for us now, as you say, it's exponential rise, intensive care is full, people getting transferred out, ward care having to just step up, intensive care is having to spread themselves out with extra machines and all the rest of it. As we sit here now on the 24th of March, what are intensive cares looking like at the minute? Are they full? I saw, I saw that Northwick Park's full, they're diverting. Yeah. I saw that... Imperial College are trying to double the capacity of their ITU in preparation. So I guess, are we on the edge of clinical capacity starting to really go down or is it, I don't know, whereabouts are we on that? I think we are, I think we're, we're um, I mean, we are nothing to what's going, is coming, but nonetheless, we're already reaching capacity and in the, in particularly in North London and Central London uh, sites are reaching their usual capacity and i've right. already heard that uh for example 20 uh, icu patients from central london are uh, going to be transferred uh, to a south london dgh to start to redistribute the load because even those sites which are increasing their bed capacity that bed capacity is going to be a compromised bed capacity it's not going to be the same quality of care or ability of care that we had before so whilst we've got you know the current capacity and maybe the sites which aren't quite you know infiltrated with this we may as well start spreading uh, spreading the uh, the patients around um, and gradually that capacity will 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 be reached our, our normal capacity be reached um, and in terms of that breach capacity i think it's important to say that it's not normal capacity it's kind of capacity that is uh, compromised so in my in my hospital yeah because surely um, you must be changing your admission criteria for itu right now um, I think, or is it that you're stopping people coming in the front door? Uh, where, whereabouts is it changing? So, uh, in my current ICU at the moment, it's are you likely to be COVID or not? And I think either way, if you need critical care, you need critical care. Mm. Um, and you know, I think one thing we have to be really vigilant, and one thing I'm humongously worried about, I think we all are, is the secondary fallout for everyone else who doesn't have COVID but has a healthcare condition. Um, mm. You know, everyone will be labelled as COVID initially. 
And actually, it might divert our attention um, away from other life-saving treatment, which is uh, also, you know, a massive concern. Um, now, I think uh, at the moment, we're not, in terms of uh, COVID, you know, we're taking anyone who is needing organ support. So that might be um, a bit of positive pressure ventilation or, or needing a full-blown ventilator. Um, and then they need to have those sort of precautions where you uh, keep them isolated from the rest of the patients. Now, we are preparing that actually everyone will get infected, or at least, you know, half the ICU will be shut off and that will become a COVID ICU. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's probably not going to be stoppable. Um, and the, the, the important thing is to try to keep a capacity that is also not covid uh, because that's only going to complicate the matter for some patients who are critically unwell. Uh, so that's going to be a massive challenge. Uh, and if I'm honest, I'm not really sure how we're going to deal with that, because uh, even in the current situation, we are preparing that we would, in a bay, we may have normally have 15 patients, we may have up to 40. But if you imagine what that bay would look like, we would be shoulder to shoulder. We would be shoulder to shoulder. It would, you know, and it takes um, to, to turn a patient, you know, when people get really, really unwell with COVID, we would, we would do something called proning, uh, ventilating them uh, on their on oh, their front. God, yeah. um, if, you know, even just the logistics of having a ventilator around their bed, which is quite a large machine, um, having all the drips and the, the the infusion pumps, and then having six people to actually uh, turn I was going to say, and they're needing one-to-one nursing as well. They're needing one-to-one nursing. Yeah, it's, it's and I, you know, the one-to-one nursing will have to be compromised. You know, I think we yeah. will be, it'll, you know, um, in traditional ICUs, you might have one to two or one to three nursing. And, you know, as you probably know, James, you know, we were even struggling from a nursing capacity point of view to achieve that, um, uh, even when this wasn't around. Of course. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this might be one nurse gowned up in PPE who may be covering an entire bay with uh uh, maybe a team just going around firefighting so i mean in my hospital i will give you an example how we are preparing things we have um obviously the areas that are likely to be covid uh positive but well, they'll be covid positive areas um now it takes we are preparing it takes about an hour actually to prepare yourself and your equipment to actually go into a covid area it takes a huge amount of preparation. So it actually makes more sense to have areas cordoned off and staff members put in there and actually are there for longer periods of time, completely donned in, PPE, mm. in, in, in the protective equipment. Um, then in terms of the various things that these sorts of patients require, they'll actually, we, we are lucky we are behind uh, Italy and, and China in terms of we can learn from them um, and know that there are some key areas where there's a shortfall and it's good to have a specific team for particular things. Um, so specific teams for intubating and putting patients onto ventilators, um, specific teams for putting lines in because they will need that. So you mm. know, have two different teams that are really well drilled at doing that. Maybe you can do it rapidly and learn a way of working together and a specific team in, you know, as we go on, uh, that can do the flipping because that again requires six people plus an anesthetist that, or, or someone who's airway trained, uh, to, to flip a patient. So, um, in terms of keeping the, the, the workforce targeted in teams may be quite a good way. And this is where we're preparing things. Um, so that, um, so that uh, we can be as efficient as possible when we have such a humongous churn of patients. It's in, yeah. It's interesting that you guys are, are preparing. Yeah. It's the calm before the storm, isn't it? I'm yes. really getting that impression. And I think it seems that, everybody is right now from the medical world from not just yourself but you know other people i've spoken to that are still frontline and, and, and stuff that that it really is like it's preparation for something that is about to hit and i think that yeah you know it, it was like the announcement last night of, of going on to lockdown you know 
it seems the hindsight's a wonderful thing and it's like oh if we'd only locked down a week ago but similarly yeah. you've got to think like christ if, if if we waited another week like you know the exponential curve has just shifted even further Definitely. and so yeah it's it's good to hear that you guys are preparing i guess for that it's unfortunate to hear that you have to prepare for that but yeah. i mean this this almost is a, a silly question in a way but are you, are you preparing for that capacity to be exhausted and having to go even further or are you are you expecting to be able to deal with it or, or are you just kind of like well this is everything that we can do anything else no, after that if, is, if, it just is what it is if i'm honest i think we are all preparing the capacity will will be not even close to what we need right uh and and we won't there's no way to prepare for that you know that will uh, it's going to be a, it's going to be a shit show on the front line Goodness, we, I, mean, I think i think we all know that actually yes um, you know, I'm hearing whispers of, 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 of you know, quite large, uh, I guess, uh, arena type areas being turned into purely for COVID patients. You know, I think hospitals are equipped for this only to an extent that we will reach saturation point and we are, we know what's happening in Italy. We know what we're going to be looking like in two weeks. Um, mm. And if I'm honest, um, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but I think, uh, and and I think actually the government are doing what they can with the the type of culture and you know um, mm. uh, we have in this country, which is a great thing. But um, mm. I am a bit disappointed with uh, with the, the the way the general public acted actually, because mm. there's an element of well, take ownership for what's coming. No one is invincible, um, and even the people who are most vulnerable, we need to protect them. You know, I completely one, agree. You know, just in the hands reach of anyone who's not taking these precautions, they may be dead. Mm. Um, are you are you concerned for your own safety massively massively um i'll be honest james um and at the moment this is suppressed but um, i put on my local facebook group uh to uh, see if anyone had a caravan uh, to protect my family um in fact uh, luckily wow. the community has been really good but um you know i still am potentially gonna put a caravan on my driveway so i can live in that wow uh, because uh, you know, the viral load on the healthcare professionals, you know, one thing which is related, obviously, exposure, but actually viral load and continual exposure, there are, you know, uh, there is evidence to think that that can relate to um, a worse outcome. And if I'm honest, we are already running short of the personal protective equipment. So mm. um, I think uh, the instructions I've had, and I think the instructions I've had for myself is above the general public, my family come first. So mm. if it came down to me not having personal protective equipment and a COVID patient dying, I would have to probably say, well, if it's not there, I'm not going to do it. And I mm. think a lot of people are taking that viewpoint because there are, there'll be a lot of people we can't save. And this is why it takes, you know, an hour and a half to don things. They're saying not to speed that up because if you rush, you're only going to compromise yourself. Mm. So, you know, and then there's um, all the people that you could have then treated in the future that you can't because you caught it and all the rest of it and you make things, you make things all the worse. That's right. It's, that's it's right. an interesting philosophy, isn't it? And actually it's a philosophy that I suppose is more akin to those that have worked in intensive cares where it is one patient at a time rather than more kind of medical ward care, which is just spread yourself as thinly as possible to do as much as you can for everyone sort of thing. I mean, it's, um, and obviously that is quite reductive, I suppose, for, for, Med, med reg is listening but you know it's it's more akin to that kind of itu style of care but as you say difficult decisions are going to have to be made at some point it's 
it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, what, what is driving you to go to work every day to do all this right now? I mean, are you feeling a sense of, a sense of purpose? I mean, surely. Stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, um, I, I think that's, uh, if I'm honest, um, I'm in slightly in a doghouse with my dad about this. My wife's uh, mm. kind of quite upset, but understands, as does my brother. But mm. yeah, I mean, I think it's the same reason, you know, you're trying to get your, your registration back up and running. We've got a skill set that yeah. is, we're going to have a massive bottleneck and, we're not going to save everyone. There's going to be a lot of deaths that you know we can't help with, and we're going to be restricted by resources. But if I'm honest, the prediction quite clearly is is staff. It was a problem before; it's going to be a problem now, mm. more than ever. And not just doctors, nurses. I think nurses are going to be. We are we are so undergunned. Um, I I can I I I understand where you come from. In that, as you as you as you pointed out, you know that's. It is literally why I've been <laughs> trying to ring the GMC to get my license reinstated because I was saying, yeah. I've said this to a few people, a few WhatsApp groups and a few you know groups on mates and stuff that are sort of almost joking, like, oh, are you going to go back to the front line, mate? Like saying like, oh, it's so horrendous. Like, da, da, da. But it's like, actually, yes, like that. Yeah. Th- there's an, just... For me, it's the sense of purpose, right? There's like a there's like a genuine sense of purpose behind going in to deal with a literally a crisis on humanity, like a global pandemic. Like, That's why right. would you, you know... What I could I can understand, you know, why people might want to stay at home to, for their own safety and all the rest of it. But similarly, I don't think I could, you know, sit at home with with a skill set that I've got. And you know, whilst I might not be able to go in and intubate someone on day one and then just take care of them one to one, I could do a lot for other people to enable them to do that. Still, you know, with that skill set. So, yeah, it, it's it's a weird it's a weird it's a weird sense of I know I'm going to the trenches, but. Yeah, I guess it, does, it, it, is, it is a bit like what I'm trained for. That's yeah, right, that's right. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think my dad's uh, over 70. He's got a few comorbidities and my dad's really not happy with me going. He thinks I'm being right. selfish for my family. But I, I actually said to him, look, the way I see things going, um, we're going to probably be saying no to people of your age group coming to intensive care full stop in mm. a matter of weeks because we just won't have capacity. I want that day to be as far as possible. Yeah. Um, and not only that, if any of my, if any of my loved ones, which actually I think uh, is a very good chance we'll all get infected with COVID at some point. Uh, if any of you needed the ventilator, if I can't be asked to set a step up, then why should I ask someone else to be able to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So I can't, you know, ultimately I don't think I have to look my daughter in the eye in a few years mm. um, and, and just sit on my hands mm. um, because yeah, myself and yourself, you know, we are lucky, you know, I guess lucky that we can actually do something, do something which uh, can save lives um, in this particular situation. Our skill set mm. is, is, is very useful. Mm. Um, you know, so, it's funny when I, when I left, when I left clinical practice um, two, three years ago, I rescinded my license, which was probably a bit before that, but I remember, th- I remember thinking and saying the, th- the thing is at the time when, when we didn't have this crisis was that, you know, I could leave today and someone would replace me tomorrow. And so actually mm. healthcare wouldn't suffer in its normal capacity because I can do that. And actually I can divert the skill set that I've got in business and all the rest of it to create change that will be felt by many, not, not the few, I guess, in, in what I could do clinically. But now it seems that that is completely flipped as like, well, actually, mm anything that you can go and contribute on the front line will make a difference end of story and so that's where i guess the purpose comes from my point of view is that i've always been impact driven and actually the 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 impact that i can make by going back to the front line now just can like far exceeds yeah. what what i could do just sat behind a few linkedin posts and all the rest of it that i'm that's trying to do with, with all so so yeah it's um yeah, Christ, interesting times. It's interesting times. I mean, I think, uh, you know, day to day when we've got through this and, you know, when we actually society's gone back to, to equilibrium, 
those things will become important again, you know, um, and, and yeah. they are the, they are the metrics of the world going around and, 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 and you know, I'll probably go, I'm, you know, I will go back to that as well. But at this point, all of that is out the window. There's only mm. some, there's only lives that actually matter at this mm. point. Uh, everyone's trapped in their homes, uh, not able to leave purely to protect each other. Yeah. Um, and to protect themselves from, uh, you know, at least having yeah. uh, the ability to be cared for when they get unwell or if they get unwell to that extent. Tell me about technology in the hospitals right now. I'm seeing a lot that startups can do. I mean, a lot of it's directed mm. at primary care, to be fair, where there is probably a bit more time to think rather than, you know, A&Es and ITUs that, that you're yeah. involved in. But are you seeing anything move with technology? Are you seeing an, an openness to innovation in, in any way in terms of ways of working or whether it is bringing you technology? Are you seeing openness to talking to other companies to bring stuff in? I mean, obviously there's the ventilator shortage, which is yeah, um, yeah. pretty well documented. But yeah, whether it's that or whether it's something else, I mean, is there anything that we can talk about through tech at the moment? Um, I can say there's innovative ways of working. I think that filtering down in terms of tech isn't quite there yet. I mean, there's mm. a lot of discussion about how we can repurpose one uh, ventilator to, to, to serve maybe uh, sev- you know, several patients. Interesting. Um, uh, so there's that. There's uh, ways of looking at things that have been done in Japan with um, some of our surgical scrubs. So we've, we've actually in our hospital, um, one of the MaxFax surgeons has converted that into a spray. And that's now within... Literally, I think he, he came up with this on Friday and by Monday it's turned into a protocol that every patient will get that squirted up their nose at the back of their throat so that even if they are colonized, they can't spread it. And same with the staff, you know, that will be optional, but you know, mm. squirt it up your nose and it should kill all the bugs in the areas that you're breathing it in and out. Uh, so I think, you know, these are kind of, it's interesting, innovation are, are relatively uh, army level. I mean, that guy is actually a colonel in the army and you can right. tell we kind of have to go at that sort of uh, pace. Mm. Uh, we mm. can't, we can't iterate, test and go. We've got to kind of just iterate and have a go and hopefully it works. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it, dig- it, it, digital tech and that sort of tech, the tech that we're used to, I guess, in our normal line of work, at the moment it's not filtering down. Yeah. No, completely understandable. It's interesting that you mentioned the military and it, it's it's that style of decision-making that seems to be required, right? As you say, fast thinking, just, yeah, there's this, 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 and this to do. So you do that, you do that, we leave that, that goes down the pan, but you know, we do that to save the rest. It's crazy decision-making that's required of people, which seems so far from the norm. Um, and obviously nice. with, with things that such high capacity i mean it, it's full right everyone's headspace literally the physical space everything is full so actually you know that room to uh, even think about new innovation that close to the front line it's obviously misplaced and it seems to be that the the innovation's happening more down at the primary care end i mean if you if you in your normal uh, i suppose other job other day job rather than your frontline mm. physician job in, in terms of um the technology and, and health tech stuff and digital health stuff that you're involved in i mean have you seen much down at primary care level that's that's been useful um yeah i mean to be honest i think uh you know um we both um work with q doctor yeah as part of your accelerator program and and actually work with them at digital london um, and also e-consults at digital london i think you know the collaborations like that are the ones which are going to be game changers because you have to remember we have to protect the primary care level staff because first of all there's uh, the patients with covid and we have to figure out well we don't really want them to come to hospital we want them to be managed at home so that the hospital only deals with the people to be honest who need a ventilator 
Mm. Um, the rest of it are simple measures. There is no cure for COVID. So these are simple measures that most of the time you can, can vast majority of things can be done at home until you get unwell enough to need the hospital. Um, so, you know, uh, doing things virtually is the key way to do that. And, the, you know, the way to provide uh, the general public reassurance um, and being able to use the capacity of um, our retired doctors, our, uh, our doctors who maybe aren't uh, specialists in primary care, they can still provide reassurance to the public virtually. Um, and, you know, coming to face to face would, would be a mistake. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's quite, I think that's really, really interesting because, you know, there are, you know, only about one in a hundred from the limited data we've got uh, will be symptomatic. Uh, to to the extent they need they need a test, mm. um, loads more of them may be te- may test positive, but they don't necessarily need to have the test. They will recover from this. Either way, to stop them using up capacity, they're going to need to have that reassurance from a healthcare professional. Not just our websites, not just one 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 talking through a protocol, just a mm. bit of reassurance that they're doing the right thing. And I think uh, virtual consultations will enable that. And I think the important thing is, you know, there will be. Obviously, there's lots of work that can't be done virtually, um, and and that frees up that capacity, you know, particularly for GPs to to focus on the patients and their normal healthcare conditions. Which, you know, if I'm honest, the fallout from that is is probably going to be larger overall than than than, than COVID. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, as you say, I think whatever whatever is required to create capacity, right? I think that. Yeah, the stuff that happens down at you know at primary care might prevent a few things being referred or admitted, and as you said, even even if it's education, is uh, getting the right advice, and That's you can right. trace that right back to people actually just complying with everything that the government's saying right now, which is just don't go anywhere near each other. <laughs> like yeah. at the very least, just yeah. do yeah. that. That's all. That's all that's being asked of you. Um, that's right. And th- that's the first step in preventing that that str- uh, you know that pressure on capacity. And then I suppose the step after that is not calling the GP if you don't need to. They're not going into the GP and they're not being referred and all the rest of it. So you're right. Yeah. I think anything anything that's happening in that pathway to to help ease capacity, right from education all the way up to intensive care. I mean, everybody trying to do stuff. You know, every little helps, right? Um, and there's yep, a lot of yep. startups trying to do that. There's a lot of startups just trying to give away what they've got for free. There's a lot of startups trying to um, do things at cost if they can't do it for free. There's there's lots of people trying to do this, but I think it's just a case of throwing everything we can at the wall here and just thinking, well, seeing what sticks, right? I think that's that, right, that that's seems right. to be the view from from you on the front line. And I think I think you know, look, I think this is an awful time for businesses, like absolutely awful. Mm. And I my heart goes out to them, you know, like. Uh, particularly with with startups, you know, runways are limited at the best of times, and this is just, you know, I think devastating for for a lot of them, and and I think in some respects mm. for some of them, kind of count your losses a little bit because you know if if people are not going to have bandwidth for your innovation and you can't figure out a way, they genuinely have bandwidth for it and it won't do uh, sort of sizable good, then just figure out ways to streamline your costs and just survive for mm. six months. Mm. You know, because right now your, your, your efforts are wasted um, and, you know, you might actually burn money trying to instigate something that no one's going to use, yeah. which means that, uh, and, and won't remember. So just, unless you can genuinely tangibly uh, be a benefit yeah. to a lot of people, don't bother. Yeah. 
I completely agree, mate. I completely agree. And actually, you know, I've been giving a lot of comms and PR advice recently to uh, to a few startups and a few bits and bobs. And I think what I'm saying more than anything else is just don't. <laughs> just <laughs> just stop it. Just no, you, you, you can't benefit from this. Like there's, there's no need to be out there saying that you can help with this, that, and the other. Like at the end of the day, there are more things going on. Like at the very... At the very most, you know, you can put a blog on your website so that people that are looking for you have got something to read that that can talk to this slightly. But at the end of the day, I think all the channels on socials need to be filled by the people that are actually doing things. We don't want to dilute that, and we we want to make sure that the information flow is of of the most important stuff. Now, obviously, that's caveated slightly with what you said, which is that businesses are in trouble, and actually, they need to do what they can to survive. And similarly, for those people that might be judging others that are posting stuff that might be seeming a little tone deaf, then you know, look at it with a bit of compassion from from perhaps their point of view that they might have queued these things up on Buffer or Hootsuite for the past twelve weeks, and actually, they're yeah. still being pumped out. So, um, you know, I've 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 had. A, f- a few interesting comments actually you know on linkedin a few of the bits that i've been putting out you know i've been just trying to smooth over the information flow and do all i can to you know i guess fertilize the ground for connections and, and partnerships and stuff and i've had a few people just with stupid comments just being like i don't know one guy was saying we need to um take care of the dying have you got an app for that and i was like well, no of course I haven't. <laughs> yeah. like the, the whole reason that everybody's doing the technology stuff is to streamline efficiency of care to allow clinicians the time to put a hand on people that might be that you know it's but a bit of an outrage culture i think so i think no matter what it is if it's something that does seem tone deaf or whether it whether it is something else i think yeah we all just need to be kind to each other at this at this point in time and um, particularly for all of us in healthcare i think a bit of compassion and kindness will go a long way um particularly to you guys on the front line as well and and yeah i commend you for everything you're doing mate i know it's a pressure on your awesome. family and all the rest of it but um yeah give me give me a few oh. weeks to get on top of the gmc and i'll uh i'll be calling you up to see if i can if you can be my boss and get me to do some <laughs> ttos and uh <laughs> a few bloods and stuff no way god help god help you mate no way <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah it'd be, it'd be my honor mate honestly uh, it would be uh, I'm, I'm i'm nothing compared to some of the healthcare professionals around me i mean i'm still part-time at the moment so it's mm. it's you know the guys around me and the ones coming up with that innovation at the front line they are the ones i'm you know uh, i'm looking to as my inspiration they're absolutely amazing people um and they're putting a lot on the line here and I think it's, it. interesting, it's interesting what you said about morale as well it's, an, it's, it's a really interesting time that morale is is going to be very low because people are so scared for their own safety but similarly for everybody in the hospital i think you're probably keeping each other's morale up as well which i think is an yeah. incredible thing well and you know interestingly you know the, the, the staff in the hospital we are part of the general public and you know yesterday was interesting because uh, uh, although there's obviously this preaching and everyone outraged with uh, the, i guess the pub the general public's behavior um in the sense that why can't we just stay away from each other but i was in the hospital yesterday and i and i literally had a quite a large sort of outburst at the entire theater saying well why are we in groups of uh 10 why why is a group of 10 people here without a mask literally next to each other why are we not doing what we preach and at the end of the day if we all go down we are truly screwed so why are we not taking these precautions um and you know that jump started everyone getting a mask and everyone going oh yeah we're not invincible. No one's invincible. Mm. Um, and we are preparing for something which we're not seeing the full light of yet. And hence we feel a bit complacent. Um, but, you know, it, it, 
we, we need to educate there as well. You know, it's re- really interesting. We need to remind each other. General public needs to remind each other. They need to, and healthcare professionals need to remind each other to do stuff to protect themselves. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, but it occurs very quickly because you have a big group of you. So that was uh, good for morale. Mm, <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, this is, this has been really useful and helpful for, for me to just understand what's actually going on the front line. Will you do me a favour and come back next week to um, keep yeah. us updated on what's going on? I appreciate that. And dude, I mean, look, normally the way that we end these is asks of the audience and all the rest of it, but have you just got any final thoughts or comments or advice mm. or calls to action for, I guess, the, the general public that, that might be yeah, listening? Definitely. I think general public, for all of us, this is us taking control of things and, and keeping everyone around us in check. And the, the, thing, the way to beat this is to stagger its spread. And all we can do is stop it coming into our homes um, and taking all the right precautions, you know, anything that you do, any little action that you do that uh, is going to stop this spreading or infecting your, you know, your family or uh, infecting others around you is essential because we are really unprepared, un- outmanned, undergunned for what's coming. Uh, and anything to slow that down is essential. So take the precautions in your house, take the precautions on yourself, the way that you conduct yourself, what you wear, um, and how you uh, clean your local environment um, and what you say to each other. And sorry, finally, is, you know, try to enjoy time with each other. You know, um, I'm locked up in house with family, but actually it's a rare moment. We actually get to spend lots of time with each other where we don't have to go to work. So try to embrace that. 